Good morning. Happy New Year's Eve to you. I uh, hope you are looking forward to a new year together. Um, I wonder if any of you have established any New Year's resolutions. Uh, I, I do want to encourage you. It's 841, uh, so you do have time left to do so. I, I do find that this time of the year is um, maybe a little bit too idealistic. Uh, this is when we come up with our best dreams forward and we make plans for a better 2018. And, and if you haven't yet established any New Year's resolutions, let me encourage you, uh, go back home after the service, turn on your TV, and watch every commercial today for the rest of the day. Uh, you will see many opportunities for New Year's resolutions. Uh, one of those might be the $1 membership to a gym. If you sign by the end of today, you can actually join a gym for $1 and that will give you a lifetime of devotion uh, to physical fitness. Um, or, or maybe it's uh, a new device. Uh, maybe you come here today and you have an heirloom cell phone. Uh, it's a flip phone that is uh, maybe a little dysfunctional. And uh, you need a new phone. Well, Verizon Wireless uh, has many good deals going right now. Uh, so you can be more digitally connected uh, to the world. Or possibly it's a wardrobe. Uh, maybe you are wearing last year's colors and you need to get into the 2018s. Uh, so if you go online, you can actually see all the colors that are appropriate for 2018 and make that resolution to devote yourself to be more fashionably relevant. You know, this time of the year is a little bit ridiculous <laughs> because our attention is captured by so many things that are telling us, devote your life to this pursuit of goodness to this pursuit of life. But in all seriousness, if we look back this past year, many of us have had really challenging years. We have faced trials beyond belief we never could have imagined. And our question as we go into the next year is how will we persevere in hope with these realities present? Now, I do think it's important for us to be asking questions about what are we devoted to as we move to the next year. But my question is how do we find the wisdom as to what we ought to devote our lives to in the coming year. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning in the sermon, is the importance of devoting ourselves to the scriptures in the new year. Unlike cultural trends, dietary plans, or cell phones, uh, God's word gives us timeless truths that we can orient our lives around. The Bible is our ultimate source for direction in the new year. And so we're going to hear from Paul in 1 Timothy 4 where he is going to clarify to us how we are to live in the year to come. How do we orient our lives around God's Word? And maybe even more than that, why should we even do so? We'll see in the Scripture in 1 Timothy 4 that we ought to devote our lives to the Scripture for the greater enjoyment of the good life, for the greater promises of godliness, and the greater hope of the Gospel. So if you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. That's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, 
For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let none of you, no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your glorious word. We thank you that you have given us direction for the new year that orients our life. Pray, O God, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to see the wondrous things in your word that we would be transformed by them as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ as our hope and our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's appropriate as we move from Christmas to really focus in on the life of Christ. Luke 2.52 tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and favor with man. The story right before this shows us how Jesus grew in these various areas of life. It was a time of great anxiety for Jesus' parents. They just left the festive celebration of the Passover, celebrating God's deliverance of the Jews from Egypt. They had festive meals and shared stories over the dinner table. And after this, they headed home with a group of people about a day's journey in length. As the group thinned, Mary and Joseph looked all around them. And they could not find the baby Jesus anywhere in sight. Truly, this is a parent's nightmare to lose your child in Jerusalem, or really any place, right? But it's especially terrifying for Mary because they had the Son of God who they were given to take care of, to shepherd, to love, to teach, and to protect. The Creator of the whole universe has given them this responsibility. So what did they do? They searched among their relatives. They looked all around the house. They looked all throughout their town. And after they couldn't find him anywhere, they headed back to Jerusalem. In great distress, they found Jesus in the temple. He was sitting among the teachers, asking them questions and discerning more about the scriptures. We see Jesus' life focus was a life devoted to the scriptures. When his parents asked why Jesus left them in such anxiety, we start to see more clearly what Jesus oriented his life around. He said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus was submissive to his parents and headed back home. You see, Jesus was very much devoted to the word of God in all of his life. 
And let me get this very clear, because Jesus was perfectly devoted to the Scriptures. He is able to earn for us salvation in a relationship with God. We not only trust in Jesus' devotion to the Scriptures, but we also follow Him and His model, devoting to the Scriptures ourselves. So look at your text in 1 Timothy 4. We see that it is covered in commands. Verse 7, train yourself for godliness. Verse 12, set believers an example. Verse 13, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Keep close watch on yourself and your teaching. All of these commands are rooted and grounded in glorious gospel promises. So why should we devote to the scriptures in the coming year? Well, the first reason is for the greater enjoyment of the good life. Many people outside the church see the Christian life as possibly dull, a dull life, uh, maybe a hypocritical life. I would say at best, maybe a moral life. But very few, I would say, look at the Christian life as the good life. A life of profound meaning, of deep satisfaction, and abiding joy. Like the young prodigal, many have journeyed far away from the church to find life in a reckless living apart from the family of God. But here we see in this text a shocking reality that God has called us to look to the scriptures and open up his text because within this text is the secret to the good life, the life of abounding joy in God. In the opening verse, we see what distracts us from this life. Look at verse 4. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says, In later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. We see in this text that there's two levels of deceivers. We have spiritual deceivers and physical deceivers. And it's interesting, if you listen into the radio to the lyrics of pop culture, you'll hear that there's a lot of conversation of dealing with our demons. There seems to be some sort of a reemergence of understanding evil as a supernatural reality. Imagine Dragons has a song called Demons that illustrates this. No matter what we breed, we are made of greed. He warns people not to get too close because it's dark inside. That's where my demons hide. Paul lets us in behind the show and pretense into the cause and reason for evil in the world. Paul unashamedly unveils this source as the source of the ancient enemy of God, Satan himself, who, as we note, is called the father of lies. Because of this deceptive teaching about the good life, many have departed from the faith and searched for life apart from God. They follow the voice of these deceptive liars. And from the very beginning, this shouldn't surprise us because Satan's tactics have been to sow seeds of doubt in the goodness and the grace of God. He misdirects people towards some other vision of the good life. Many have taken his bait and followed his path. Has God kept you back from all joy? Surely you will not die. You will be like God. You can determine the good for yourself. Go on your own journey of meaning making. Find joy on your own terms. These are the very lies he's been saying from the beginning. Verse 2 reveals that these lies come to us through the lips of physical humans, from the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Notice that like the evil spirits, these men also lie to us. 
They make great promises of goodness and joy, but they fail to deliver. They have lost all moral sensitivity. Their consciences are seared. This is a medical term of burning away the nerve ends so you don't feel pain. Because of their lifestyle of rebellion, they no longer feel guilt or shame for their misdirected practices. Some of these deceptions come from pursuing forbidden joy, a joy that God has not called us to pursue. But what's interesting in this text is these people are actually hindering God's people from pursuing a joy that God has called us to thoroughly enjoy. They forbid marriage and food. Forbidding marriage and food may have something to do with the physical appetite from sexual pleasure and the pleasure of eating. You see, in the early church, there were a group of Gnostics. These Gnostic folks, they were so obsessed with the spiritual, the high life of spiritual living that they denied all physical experiences. They believed that our physical experience is so marred by evil that it should be reined in and avoided at all costs. We need to escape the physical and enter into this higher realm. There was also a Jewish community around during this time called the Essenes, and they had strict regulations in regards to pleasure. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian during the time of Christ, the Essenes sought to reject pleasure as an evil. They esteemed sexual self-restraint as a virtue, and they would even reject marriage altogether. So how do we discern the good life with these multiple distortions? Well, Paul says it starts with trusting in the good God who has created this good world. Both marriage and food are to be received with thanksgiving. Why? Look at verse 4. He says, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. This brings us back to God's original creation. Do you remember the refrain? God creates first day. He makes the, the light. He commands it into existence. And He says, This is very good. This is good. This is good. And on the last day when He creates humanity, He says, This is very good. Both marriage and food were to be received with thanksgiving because it is God's good creation. But since sin corrupted even our human discernment, we need two guides to help us along the way to discern the good life. Paul says that the pursuit of enjoyment of God's creation is made holy by the Word of God and by prayer. The Scripture in prayer helps us to discern those holy joys God has called us to pursue. We devote to Scripture... Asking in what context, for what purpose, and in what way do we pursue the good life? Sex and marriage has a context and purpose in God's word. As we see in Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So then our sexual commitment is to be reserved for a whole life commitment of marriage alone. And many in society would claim that if you truly love someone, then you will have sex with that person. But when we engage in sex outside of the marriage covenant, this whole life commitment, we actually withhold love because we withhold our very self. True love for a person in the scripture is a cause to make a whole life covenant commitment with that person rather than simply giving them part of our life and sexuality. So marriage provides a secure and faithful relationship where we can enjoy freely and enjoy this most intimate pleasure without fear of rejection. Out of the security of this bond, husbands and wives are called to be fruitful, to multiply, 
to fill the earth with children to the ends of the earth. Paul also clarifies that our sexual commitment is not a commitment of personal pleasure, but a commitment to pleasing our spouse. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that the husband and wife's bodies do not belong to themselves, but to each other, to the spouse that they've married. Sex is to be offered for the good of the other person, and not for our own personal pleasure alone. This confronts a culture of pornography that makes us into glory thieves and takes away pleasure for ourselves, rather than other-focused servants who seek to please our spouse. But the scripture also reminds us that marriage and sex are not everything. Paul and Jesus were single their whole life. Paul says that the single and married people can enjoy this union with Christ to which marriage and sex point. He even celebrates singleness as an opportunity to greater devotion to God and to love of our neighbor. So then we see direction in God's word. And we ask, what has God called us to in marriage and sex and all of the good life that he's given to us? And as we seek direction in the word of God, we pray with thanksgiving to God who gave these gifts. When we pray to God with thanksgiving for these good gifts, we keep them from becoming too great in our own hearts. We recognize that all this goodness is a gift from God. We enjoy and worship God rather than worshiping the gift that's given. Our enjoyment of the good life flows out of a deep enjoying of God's goodness and grace, the one who's given us life and breath and everything else, that we discern the good life in word and prayer. Well, Paul moves from discerning the good life to discipline in the good life. Why devote to the scriptures? Because of the greater promise of godliness. Look in your text in verse 7. He says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We have moved into the gymnasium where God teaches us the significance of spiritual training. Here, Paul makes an analogy of physical fitness to spiritual fitness and godliness. There is limited value to physical fitness, but in godliness there is value in every single way. This word of training refers to the Olympic Games. For many of us, working out, uh, if if we do work out, uh, is a regular discipline to increasing our health. It makes us look more trim or feel better physically. For those preparing for the Olympic Games, the athlete must train for his own livelihood. He trains with absolute discipline and focus. Their lives are oriented around this workout schedule because the goal of winning the games has become most important. Paul is not saying here that if we live a godly life, we will somehow earn the life to come. This would go completely contrary to the gospel he's already proclaimed in this letter. Earlier on, Paul, using himself as an example, says Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom he is the foremost. So the gospel is the good news of God's merciful forgiveness, not our rigorous performance. So what does Paul mean when he says that there is great promise for those who pursue this spiritual training? Well, first we must define what is godliness. Biblically speaking, we cannot mean simply law following or moral living. This definition is far too impersonal. This godliness is of great value because it is a life with God. 
It is a relational word, meaning reverence toward God that flows out of a love for God. We pursue this godly life because of the promise of deeper intimacy with a God of love. Jesus connects godliness to love and joy in John 15, verse 9 through 11. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that you may have joy in you and that your joy may be full. You see, the most valuable thing in this life of godliness is God Himself, the One that we love and adore, the One that sent Jesus to die for our sins. We get to respond to this love by following after Him. And so obedience is not a drudgery, but is a joy-filled gift of knowing the God of love who's pursued us. In another sense, godliness holds promise for us in this life and the life to come because it points to the goal and destiny of our very growth. As we grow in godliness, we are becoming everything we were made to be in the beginning. You see, being created in the image of a God who identifies himself as a merciful and gracious God one who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We are called to reflect God's character in the world. When we rebelled against God in the very beginning, we shattered this mirror image of God. From the very first promise to Adam through the history of Israel to the time when Jesus entered in this creation, God has been remaking and reshaping all those things that have been shattered by sin. Jesus enters into this creation as the image of the invisible God. And all who trust in His saving work are being reshaped, conformed after the same image of Jesus, following His way of life. So when we pursue godliness, we are being restored into the image-bearing, character-reflecting calling we had from the beginning. If the gems have something to offer about what it means to be truly human, then the Scripture all the more. Because this is God's very word. But training in godliness requires support. Just like training physically requires support. I mean, be honest. How many of you have ever entered the gym the first time by yourself? There's no way. We're pushed and encouraged and motivated by our friends that go with us. And so in a similar manner, we need that support and that fellowship with each other. We need to encourage one another to continue to pursue God's call. To be truly human as Jesus was truly human. And as we move into this new year, I want to challenge you to partner up with people in the church. This is really simple. Simply find someone in the church that you want to open up God's Word with and look in the Scripture together. I want to encourage you to do this at least once a month. Can we do that? I mean, I think that's simple enough. I would even say twice a month if you're really uh, up for a challenge. This is a great New Year's resolution. We're going to begin a series to the book of Numbers coming this next Sunday. And so I've developed a Pentateuch uh, devotional study, which will carry you through the Pentateuch until September of next year. So I'm not calling you to read the Bible in a whole year, uh, though you can do that, and there's a lot of value to that. I'm simply calling you to read God's Word, the first five books. And let's do that together as a community. You can find these Pentateuch devotions and the Lot Commons on the table in various places in there. But this is the reason why we do this. Because the promise of godliness is great. And there's great reward as we pursue this. Well, I don't know about you, but all these phrases of training, all these calls to toil with all your might, all this call to strive with everything within you, 
can sometimes be very debilitating. Uh, Some of us hear these words and you're motivated by challenge. And you're thinking, I'm going to start this week because I was called to a challenge to read God's word. Actually, not only that, I'm going to start in the book of Leviticus to show that I can get through the book of Leviticus. Well, that might be some of you, but my experience is many of us have no problem starting a workout plan. The problem is keeping it going as the months pass by. This is proven by the spike in gym memberships at this time of the year. Many people decide to join a gym at this time because of the $1 offer or because they see the need to go do this. So here's how it goes typically. The first week, they walk up to the gym, bright-eyed and hopeful, wearing their new gym clothes they got Christmas morning, and they walk through the door and they get to it. Every single day before work, even at 5 a.m. in the morning. Well, after the pain of the first week, the next week comes around, and instead of going every single day, you go maybe three or four days at most, but you still win, and so you're cheerful and you're hopeful. But then you get to the third week, and you step on the scale, and you realize that all the pain you experienced the first two weeks has accomplished nothing at all by the third week. I was promised 10 pounds off one week. And so you come to the fourth week, and you say, eh, that's it, not for me. No more training, no more reason to continue. We say, at least we tried, and you sure did. So how do we avoid this cycle of starting up something new and then just leaving it to the side, moving on to other things? How do we avoid burnout in our spiritual growth this next year? Well, Paul's going to get to that in this last verse here. We see that what we need is a recalibration of our hope. We need to be reminded of where is our hope for ongoing growth, What is our hope rooted in? And this is where Paul clearly points out the glory of the gospel. He says here that ultimately Christ has come to save his people. And this is good news for those that are struggling to grow in our faith. He points out that our hope is in a living God who is a savior of all, especially of those who believe. This encourages us to remember that God is alive. That the God who created the world that has formed you and brought you to faith in Christ is actively working to change and transform you. The God who began that good work in you will carry it to completion, people of God. Don't lose heart. Continue in His grace. Because He is for you and is committed to you in the Gospel. We find out that this God who is alive and active is a God who has accomplished eternal salvation. You're not saved by the progress of your growth this next year. You're not saved by how well you keep your New Year's commitments. You're not saved by how shallow your New Year's commitment is. You're saved because Jesus Christ perfectly pursued the Father in absolute devotion to God. He lived for us to declare us righteous before God. He died for us to take the punishment for all the ways we devoted to rebellion against God. He rose for us to give us the hope of renewal and restoration. So set your hope this new year on this living God and devote to the Scriptures as Jesus Himself devoted. Well, in the 1992 Summer Olympics, Derek Redman performed as one of the strongest contenders for the gold medal in the 400-meter dash. He broke the record time in Britain in 1987 for the fastest time in the 400-meter. The gun shot off And he began the 400-meter sprint heading towards the finish line. As he was rounding the first corner, he felt a sharp and excruciating pain in his back knee. 
He said it felt as though a knife stabbed him and turned within. He pulled his hamstring 250 meters left in the race. He hit the ground and the other runners sped ahead of him to finish the race. But he was determined to finish the very race that he began. He pushed himself up from the ground and hobbled to the finish line. And as he scowled in agony from the pain, he pressed on step by step so that he might finish the race. He dismissed every medical helper that came on the track to pull him away to care for him because he wanted to finish this race. And all of a sudden, he heard a familiar voice whisper in his ear. His dad evaded the Olympic security, and he actually ran onto the race course with him. His father caught up to Derek, and he said, Derek, it's me. You don't need to do this. Derek responded, Dad, I want to finish the race. Get me back in the semifinal. His dad responded, Okay, we started this thing together. And now we'll finish it together. At this point, Derek stopped running and walked on the track with his father's arms around him, holding him tightly for support. It's one of the most beautiful expressions of a father's love and commitment to his son. His dad kept repeating in his ear, you're a champion. You've got nothing to prove. I wonder if this new year you'll hear the Lord's voice whispering in your ear, Saying to you, we started this thing together. Now let's finish the race to the end. He is committed to your growth throughout your life. He has not forsaken you in your struggle. But the problem is, this isn't the 400 meter dash, is it? It's a lifelong marathon. But God has promised to be committed to you in covenant faithfulness to the very end of the race. He doesn't look at you with shame, beloved. He looks at you in love. He longs to share life with you. He longs to pour out His affection in your own heart. So this new year, you have nothing to prove. You have the full acceptance and love of your Heavenly Father because of Jesus Christ and His devotion. So be free this year. Devote yourself to the Scriptures. But most importantly, look to the Lord Jesus Christ who is devoted to you more than you could ever be devoted to Him. All of this because of the glorious news of God's saving work in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are devoted to us. That you love us with a steadfast love in Jesus Christ. Pray, O Lord, as we awake to the new year, Lord, would you help stir our hearts with a deeper love for you. Would you move and compel us by your grace to pursue the call that you have in our life. To devote ourselves to the scriptures and so become who you made us to be. Help us to do this by your Spirit working in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.